You know, the greatest responsibility and the greatest privilege you and I have in the church is to partner with Jesus on his mission. You know, when Christ called you to himself, if you are a follower of Jesus, he, he said to you, in essence, the same thing he said to his original disciples, hey, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. In other words, follow me and I'm going to lead you towards people. And I'm going to use you to bring my kingdom to them. I'm going to use you to bring the message of my grace and my goodness and my kindness and my mercy and my salvation towards them. And, and so those of us who have said in response to Jesus, yes, we believe in you. We want to follow you. We want to give our lives to you. That's, that's where he's leading us. And the greatest privilege and the greatest responsibility we have as a church in the world right now is to partner with Jesus as it relates to the mission he is engaging in and leading out in the world around us. You see, mission isn't so much what you do for Jesus. Mission is what you and I have the privilege of doing with Jesus. It's much better to do things with Jesus than it is to do things for Jesus. This was Jesus' example in his life and ministry when he said in the Gospel of John, you know, I'll only do what I see my father doing, that he was so in tune to his heavenly father's agenda. He was so in tune with what the father was doing in any given moment that he could discern where the father was working and he went to join him there. So when he met the woman in Samaria at the well in John chapter 4, what was happening in that moment? Well, Jesus says at the beginning of the story, I had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because his father was at work there. And if the father was working, he wanted to join him. And this is, in essence, our journey as well, that we live our lives seeking to be so in tune with Jesus, so filled with his spirit and aware of his presence, and our ears are sensitive to his voice, that where we see him working, we move to join him. Because mission isn't what we do for Jesus, it's what we have the privilege of doing with Jesus But one of the challenges in our lives when it comes to walking with Jesus and and living a life on mission and being about the things that Jesus is about and doing the things that Jesus is doing right now, one of the things that hinder us are various unholy impediments or unholy habits of the heart that we bring into our relationship with Jesus. You know, when you put your faith in Jesus and you hear the gospel, you respond in faith, you trust in Christ, When that happens, you don't, in that moment, become a perfectly loving person. You don't, in that moment, become a person who is perfectly in tune with what Jesus is doing in any given moment, in any given day. Those are things you must learn as you grow up as a follower of Jesus. And as you grow up as a follower of Jesus, you're going to find Jesus working within you to remove any impediment in your heart that hinders his love from flowing through you into the lives of those around you. As a human being, you are created to love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And you're called by God to love your neighbors as yourself, but Even though we've put our faith in Jesus, we're still not doing that perfectly because there are still these lingering impediments that Jesus is seeking to remove so that we might grow in our ability to love God and to love people, that we might grow in our effectiveness in doing mission with Jesus and not trying to do mission for Jesus. 
And so here in this story that we're going to look at this morning, if, evening, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to open them up to actually Acts chapter 10, the passage that our friend Jen read for us a moment ago in Acts chapter 11. That was basically a summation of all that goes down in Acts chapter 10. So we're going to look, starting in Acts chapter 10, and we're going to take a look at a rather lengthy passage where you see Jesus going to work in the apostle Peter's life. And he's going to work in Peter to remove some impediments from his heart so that his gospel might cross cultures and reach a people that has yet to have been reached with the gospel. At this point in the story of Acts, Christianity is largely a Jewish movement. It's largely a movement within ethnic linguistic Jewish peoples. But you know as well as I do that God or Jesus told his disciples at the end of Matthew chapter 28 that they are to go therefore to make disciples of all nations that every people group on the planet are to be engaged with the gospel and to be brought into the kingdom of God. We know at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that we are told that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and his empowerment will lead us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. In other words, that we would take the gospel everywhere. But at this point in time, in Acts chapter 10, the gospel is still remaining kind of bottlenecked within the Jewish people, but he, God's about to change that. Jesus is about to do the work in a man named Cornelius' life, and he's about to do a work, most importantly, in Peter's heart so that Peter would set the agenda for the church to go forth and to love all people everywhere with the gospel. But in order for that to happen, again, some impediments need to be removed from his heart. And I suspect that if you were going to live a life on mission, and if you were going to grow in doing mission with Jesus, and not simply doing mission for Jesus, so that you're acting in love, and you're acting in the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, I suspect there's some impediments within your heart that need to be removed, that need to be dealt with, that need to be carved out as well. We don't want the love that Jesus pours into our lives to be impeded in flowing from our lives into those all around us. And so Acts chapter 10, we find this story, and it's a lengthy story. We're going to divide it up into about five scenes. And as we kind of look at the story in five scenes, then I'm going to draw about five takeaways on the back end of, of how uh, this passage may implore us to live lives on mission as individuals, as families, as a church family here in Seattle. Let's start here in chapter 10, verse 1. Scene number 1 takes place in a man named Cornelius's home, and this is what happens. It says, there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. So this guy we're immediately introduced to isn't Jewish. He's a military man. He's in the Italian uh, regiment. He's not of the ethnic linguistic peoples. In other words, he's not like Peter, and he's not like James, and he's not like John. But it says in verse 2 that he was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. This means that Cornelius was what the Jewish people referred to in that day as a God-fearer. This would be someone who wasn't ethnically or linguistically Jewish. This would have been someone outside of the Jewish people, but someone who was attracted to the God of Israel. And so this would have been a person who said, okay, I believe God, the creator, has done something unique with Israel, and I'm looking in their direction to learn more about who God is. And so he postured himself positively towards the people of Israel, and they referred to people like this as a God-fearer. So he was interested in the God of Israel. And then he goes on, he did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God 
About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Staring at him in awe, Cornelius said, what is it, Lord? And the angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. So here you have Cornelius. God is at work within him to do something distinct and special in his life because he's interested in the God of Israel. And now the God of Israel is saying, okay, I'm going to introduce myself to you. I'm going to bring you to the one who reveals me to the world. His name is Jesus. But to learn about Jesus, I'm going to connect you to a guy named Peter. Now, you would think that an angel appearing to Cornelius in a vision, that angel could have taken that moment and saved a whole lot of time to tell him about Jesus. He could have shown up in the vision and told Cornelius, look, I know you've been seeking after God, and I know you're interested in the God of Israel. Well, the God of Israel's name is actually Jesus, and he lived, and he died, and he rose from the grave for for people like you. The angel could have delivered that message, but that's not how it goes down. Think about how it goes down. The angel of the Lord shows up, and rather than delivering the gospel to Cornelius, the angel of the Lord actually says, I'm going to connect you to another human being, and that other human being is going to tell you the gospel of Jesus. You see, God's ordinary way of bringing people to Jesus is through people, through the testimony of human beings. Think about why that is. The angel in this story has no heartfelt understanding of what grace is. The angel in the story doesn't know what it means to be forgiven of sins. But do you know who does? The one who does would be Peter the Apostle. The one who does would be another human being who could step into conversation with this human being and say, hey, look, you and I are a lot alike. You know, we are created by God. Our sin messed up our relationship with God. But God has worked to make that right by sending Jesus to die for you and for me so that our sins can be forgiven and our lives can be redeemed and rescued. So the ordinary way in which God advances his kingdom and he builds or he introduces people to Jesus is through the testimony of people who know Jesus. And I'm not just talking about those who know Jesus from afar. The angel knew who Jesus was. I'm talking about people who know Jesus on the heart level because they've been affected by what Jesus has done. And so when it comes to living a life on mission, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about people introducing people to Jesus. We're talking about people being used by God to connect people to the Christ. This is what we're called to do. This is what a life on mission is all about. And so this moment kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen in Cornelius' life. Meanwhile, we'll shift to scene two. Drop down to verse nine. Drop down to verse nine and you flash to scene two. While, While this vision is being given to Cornelius and Cornelius then decides to send two members of his household and a devout soldier off to fetch Peter so that he could connect with him and and meet with Peter, then Peter's having this experience where he is. It says in verse 9, The next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof at about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat. Well, while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. 
And a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But notice how Peter responds in verse 14. He says, no, Lord, for I've never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. So Peter has his own experience. Cornelius is getting a vision where he is. Peter is falling into a trance, and he's getting this vision that's commanding him to do something that he initially resists. And Peter, in verse 4, he's staying true to form, right? Peter, in verse 14, is doing what you would expect Peter to do if you've paid much attention to his story in the Gospels. And it is this moment that reminds us that when a person becomes a Christian, they do not become practically perfect. When a person becomes a Christian, they do not instantly and automatically start firing on all love cylinders. It's this moment that reminds us that Peter is still a work in process, just like you and just like me. So if you've ever wondered, why am I still struggling with certain things? I thought when I became a Christian, I should be changed and transformed. Let me encourage you to show a little patience with yourself to continue to believe the gospel, to continue to interact with Jesus and let him carve out things that need to be carved out of your life. I assure you they're there and Jesus wants to carve them out, but, but notice that it's happening to Peter in this moment. He sees this image, he hears this command, I want you to go and eat, and Peter argues. He argues with the Lord just like he does on a number of occasions in the gospel. There's one moment where Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem and when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be crucified. But then he also assures them, but don't sweat it. After three days, the Messiah, the Son of Man, must rise again. And he tells his disciples that, but Peter argues. He resists, and he steps in the way. And in a sense, he serves as an impediment to the advancement of the gospel in the world. Because he's saying to Jesus, look, you're not going to the cross. He's failing to see the significance of Jesus going to the cross. And so he argues with Jesus there, and he sets up an impediment, so to speak. But then there's another moment where Jesus... Jesus sits Peter down, and he's getting ready to be betrayed and tried and crucified. And he says, look, this night is going to go really bad for you because you're going to be asked a few times of whether or not you know me or you're one of my disciples, and you're going to say no. You're going to deny me three times. And Jesus is being very honest with Peter about what he is like and what he's going to do. But Peter doesn't respond positively. He's like, he protests. He says, far be it from me, Lord. I will never deny you. He goes so far to say, even if I must die with you, I will never do that. Now, of course, Jesus was right, and exactly what Jesus said went down, which is why it's never a good idea to argue with Jesus, right? If he's telling you something, listen to Jesus. Don't protest, don't fight, don't argue, because you're going to be proven wrong in the end. You're going to be proven wrong in the good ways and in the bad ways, which was Peter's experience. We're here in this moment. He's arguing with Jesus. I've I've never eaten anything that was ceremonially unclean, and And the Lord is speaking to him saying, well, that's got to change because you have a mission to do. That's got to change because there are people whom I love that you call Gentiles and that you have been trained and conditioned up to this point in your life to consider them unclean. But those people are not to be considered unclean. Now, one of the biggest impediments to Peter living life on mission and crossing cultures and engaging non-Jewish people with the gospel, one of the biggest impediments was how he viewed food. And as a Jewish man, he was raised in a devout manner that says, I'm not going to eat food that I'm not supposed to eat. And even though Jesus says to Peter in Mark chapter 7, there's coming a day when these food laws and these food regulations are going to be lifted. 
that that's no longer going to serve as a barrier between you and other people because really those food laws don't even like they are to be understood in a way that you and other Jews aren't understanding in that moment. There's coming a day where you're going to see, recognize that the food laws just represented that there's something that does defile human beings in the world. But what I'm going to show you is that what defiles people isn't so much what goes into them, it's the stuff that comes out of them. And so he's going to communicate this message to Peter in Mark chapter 7. And, and so Peter should have already learned this lesson, but apparently he didn't. Mark chapter 7, verse 18. Jesus said to his disciples, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And then there's this parenthesis that Mark inserts. He's explaining this to us. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean, meaning don't let food be an impediment to you and the mission that you are going to be executing soon. And so Jesus said, it's what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come, and he lists all these impediments that keep us from loving God and loving people, evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. It is these things that need to be carved out of the heart so that love may flow freely and fluidly and ferociously through his people. And so... Peter should have learned this message, but apparently he hasn't because he was a work in process like us all. And so what he's learning in Acts chapter 10 is that Peter has no excuse not to love another person. That he cannot appeal to food laws as an excuse not to cross cultures, not to go after people who are far from God and need to hear the beauty about the beauty of Jesus. There's no excuses. We are to go. We are to engage. And, And so he has this encounter Check out verse 20, what happens. After he has this, he falls into this trance and he received this message. Peter was trying to figure out what's going on. And then Cornelius' friends, his, his, um, the people he sent to get him, show up. Verse 19, rather. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all because I have sent them. Don't you love how involved the Spirit is? Peter's not doing things for Jesus. He's doing things with Jesus. The Spirit is speaking. He's responding. And so he gets up, goes downstairs, and and says, Here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? And they said, Well, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who has a good reputation with the the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. And I love verse 23 because verse 23, Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. He said, okay, come on in. We'll sleep here for the night. I'll give you some food. I'll give you a bed. And and then tomorrow we will get up and we will set out to go meet with Cornelius. So you get to scene three, beginning in verse 24, where Peter and Cornelius meet. The next day they get up, they go, verse 24. The following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and get this, he fell at his feet and he worshipped him. Now, I I don't think you've probably ever had that done to you. You've probably never walked into a new room and met a new person, and their initial reaction was to fall at your feet and to worship you. That's probably not happening. But think about what Cornelius just experienced. 
He just had a vision, or he was just told by an angel to go meet with Peter. So in his mind, he's probably thinking, this Peter must be someone special. This Peter must not be an ordinary man. He must be an extraordinary man. He must be worthy of some type of homage and adoration and worship. And so when he sees Peter, he falls down and he begins to worship him. And you can, you can, get, you can, you can imagine why Cornelius would have thought that after having an encounter with an angel to meet this man. But then notice what Peter does. Of all the scenes and all the stories that involve Peter, what he does next is my favorite thing he ever does. It's my favorite thing he ever does in all the Gospels. It's my favorite thing he does in other stories where he's involved in in the New Testament. Notice verse 26. But Peter then lifted him up. He picked him up and he said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. What Peter is doing in that moment is he's responding with great humility. This is what a humble person does. A humble person never gives someone else the impression that they are inferior to them. A humble person never gives others the impression that they are superior to them. That neither superiority nor inferiority are the mark of a humble person. And so what does Peter say? He says, look, don't bow down. Don't worship me. Stand up. I'm a man just like you. This is what humility looks like. Humility looks like looking at other people right in the eye. Humility looks like standing shoulder to shoulder with other people who are created in the image of God. Other people who have sinned and have been separated from God just like you. Humility says we're all created in the image of God. Humility says sin has distorted that image in all of us. And humility says we are all in need of the grace of Jesus. So when a Christian goes out on mission, when we cross cultures to share the gospel and make disciples, we don't step into places looking down on cultures and looking down on people. We don't step into cultures and contexts necessarily looking up to people and looking up at places. What we do is we walk into rooms and we stand eye to eye and shoulder to shoulder with every other human being on the planet, recognizing that we are all created in God's image, that we're all jacked up by sin, and that we are all in need of Jesus. That's what humility says. And this is what Peter is doing in this moment. Look, I'm just like you. God created me and I was jacked up. Jesus has saved me and he's still changing things about me. And he's honestly engaging Cornelius in this setting. And when you live a life on mission, you learn to embody that same type of humility to communicate that same message. And then notice verse 28. Drop down there. After listening, lifting him up and saying, I myself am also a man, Peter says to him, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. He's saying the way I used to view people like you has changed. Jesus is changing how I view people who are not like me. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask why you sent for me? And then Cornelius shared his experience and the vision he received and, and what the angel had said to him. And, and so Cornelius sent for Peter saying, I need to meet with you because I think there's something you need to tell me. There's, there's something that you have that I need. Look at verse 33. It says, so I immediately sent for you and it was good for you to come. So now 
We are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. He's saying, look, you're here. I'm here. All my friends are here. We're in this house. You have a message. Please share it. And that brings us to scene four where Peter does just that. Peter shares the gospel in verses 34 to 43. And notice how he begins in verse 34. Peter began to speak. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I love where Peter begins. Because Peter had to be taught this. Because there was a tendency within the Jewish faith in the first century to think that God favored Israel to the exclusion of other peoples in the world. But the gospel declares otherwise, and Peter's starting with this reality, saying, look, God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there is the reality that God chooses the people of Israel. God calls Israel out of Egypt. He claims them as his people. He does things in and for the people of Israel that he does not do for any other people group on the planet. And he sets Israel up in the world to fulfill a unique purpose, to be a people who live their lives on mission. Meaning they were to receive God's love and grace towards them and relay it to all the nations surrounding them. This is why in the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as they were called to be a light unto all the nations. But if you study the Old Testament and if you look at the Jewish world, especially of the first century, you're going to find that Israel didn't do that very well. That their light did not shine very bright. In fact, it was quite dim. Many times it went all dark because they were not being faithful to what Jesus had called them to be. And they weren't doing the things that God had called them to do. And so when Israel was called in the Old Testament, it wasn't because God favored them to the exclusion of every other people group or every other nation in the world. God chose Israel in the Old Testament for the sake of every other people group, for the sake of every other nation, for the sake of all the people that surrounded them. And you can trace that truth all the way into your own discipleship. Why are you a Christian? Why has God called you to himself? Why have you experienced God's grace in your life? Why do you believe the gospel? Why are you following Jesus? Well, I assure you, You are not a Christian to the exclusion of everyone else surrounding you. God has called you into this life for the sake of everyone else around you. You, as a part of the church, are now to live as lights in this world. You, in the church, are to let your light shine, so to speak, so that more men and women might see the beauty of Jesus and be attracted to him. You are a Christian not just for your own sake. You are a Christian for the sake of everyone else around you. Let me put it this way. As a follower of Jesus, your life is not to be lived as a, in a spiritual cul-de-sac cut off from every other major intersection or thoroughfare in the world. A place where you can huddle up with other Christians and exclude yourself from all the other people in the world. No, your life isn't to be lived in the suburbs in a cul-de-sac. Your life is to be lived as a major intersection where people groups are colliding and movement is happening, where people are being introduced to the beauty of Jesus because of your testimony, because of what God's doing in your life. This is why life on mission isn't an option for any follower of Jesus. What we're talking about tonight is not an option. 
It is the calling of your salvation to be in relationship with Jesus. Yes, for your sake, but not to the exclusion of others, but for the inclusion of others as you learn to live your life on mission. As you learn to make disciples, as you learn to engage people who don't know the gospel. So Peter begins by affirming this. Look, God does not show favoritism. That was a great way for him to start because everybody in the room assumed God showed favoritism. But then he lays out the gospel beautifully. And you were here tonight and you don't know what the gospel is. Let me just give you the gospel because Peter gives it to us here in this passage. He begins in verse 36 by affirming that Jesus is Lord of all. The gospel begins with who Jesus is. And Peter says Jesus is Lord of all, meaning he's the ruler of all, and all there means all, right? And he's going to go on to say in this message that every person is ultimately accountable to Jesus because he is the judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus is the Lord of all. He is the creator who took on flesh to dwell among us. And he starts with who Jesus is, but then he starts talking about what Jesus did in verse 37. He said, you know, the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. So he focuses on the life that Jesus lived, that he traveled the world loving people, doing good to others. We know from the Gospels that he was proclaiming the kingdom and telling people about what God intended for them. Verse 39, Peter says, and I was a witness of this. I saw it with my own eyes. But then he says that people did not respond positively to what Jesus was doing. It says in verse 39 that they killed him by hanging him on a tree. You see, the gospel isn't infatuated with the life that Jesus lived. The gospel is cent centers on the death that Jesus died. That when Jesus went to the cross and he was crucified, he was Going to the cross to do something specific, he was going to the cross to die a certain kind of death. And we're going to learn later that he died so that our sins may be forgiven. Our hearts may be cleansed, the impediments might be removed because Jesus is doing something for us. And then he goes on, verse 40, God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So he's saying this Jesus who was killed was also risen. And when he resurrected, he defeated sin, he defeated Satan, he defeated death. He ushered in a new reality for all who would believe in him and trust in him. And then he says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And so that's what Peter's doing and that's what we do. Because Jesus is alive, we go forth and we declare that he came, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again from the grave. So what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus is Lord. Jesus lived the life that you could not live. He loved God completely. He loved people compassionately. Jesus died on the cross not because he failed in any discernible way. He died on the cross because you and I failed in all kinds of discernible ways. Jesus, after dying, did not stay dead, for had he stayed dead, it would not be good news. His life might inspire us, but it certainly would not empower us if Jesus was dead. 
But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, and with his resurrection came a new creation in the current creation, a new creation that is going to be kickstarted in the hearts of people like you and me who come to believe in him and who are given his spirit, and his spirit awakens within us a new love for God, a new love for people. And yes, there's still impediments kind of kind of clogging things up in our heart, but the good news of God's grace is that Jesus is now at work to remove that, and he's carving that stuff out, and that's what it means to grow as someone who's believing in the gospel, who's being filled with the Spirit. (coughs) And the good news of this dynamic is that Jesus did all of this for you before you even asked for it. He did all of this for you before you ever did anything to deserve it. So if you're not a Christian and you're in this room tonight, understand that salvation comes as a free gift. It comes to sinners like us by the grace of God who treats us far better than we deserve, who is so kind to us, though we have not been kind to him and we have not been kind to each other. God has shown us grace. So if you're looking for salvation tonight, let me encourage you that you don't have to buy it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to achieve it. You just have to receive it, which is what this group of people will do. It says in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all who heard the message. The truth of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit colliding in that moment. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being given to them. What is salvation? Salvation is having God in your life. It is being the gift, it is being given the gift of God's presence, the Holy Spirit being given to you so that you might be reconciled to God. This is the Christian life. This is salvation. And this gift went to them then, and this gift can be given to you now. And so the people in the room, they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Things began to get a little wild in the room. And what you're seeing in this moment, it was basically a, a Pentecost for people who were non-Jewish. It was a recasting of what goes down in Acts 2. It was God's way of saying, look, this group of people who now have my spirit and are now believing my gospel, when they come into the church, they are not to assume an inferior status. When they come into the church, they're going to be one with you because there is no feeling or sense of superiority or inferiority in the church that we all stand shoulder to shoulder in the grace of God. And so the Gentiles, all this is affirmed and confirmed in this moment when the Spirit falls upon them. And it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Now, you would think at that point that everything was great. That the story would end there and the church would be a place where Jews and Gentiles could worship together. Where everyone was receptive of new Christians and new people who were repenting and believing the gospel. But that's not what initially happens. Remember, Christians, we are works in process. Churches, we are works in process. We all have areas to grow, room to develop, room to mature. Well, the, the first century church did so as well. And so in Acts chapter 11, when the apostles and the other Christians in Jerusalem heard about what happened with the Gentiles, they didn't receive it or celebrate it at first. At first, they were suspicious. At first, they were cynical. 
But I love what Peter does in chapter 11 is that in chapter 11, Peter goes home and he begins to advocate for these Gentile believers, saying, no, they, they have the Holy Spirit. They're believing the gospel. They're a part of our community. They've been brought into the company of the redeemed. They are with us now. And he could have, or he went to the church and he began to share this to advocate for their inclusion, to advocate for their acceptance. And, and drop down to verse 15. He Remember what he said. He said, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, just as on us at the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? And notice how they respond in verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. You know, silence is oftentimes a great clue that God is speaking. When God speaks and we grow silent and we're just thinking about what God is speaking and we're thinking about what God is doing, it's a, it's a good indication that something unique and special is happening. So the people responded upon hearing Peter. They responded with silence at first. They didn't know what to say. But as they sat in silence and they considered all the things that they heard, they, they then began to move towards it. They then began to celebrate it. And he says then that they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. And the church, to her credit, came around to what Peter was saying. And though the church blew it at first, they soon came to know that it was right and that it was real and they started glorifying God in response to it. And they said, okay, life on mission, this is what it's about. Life on mission is about being, doing things with Jesus, not for Jesus, because Jesus is clearly quarterbacking and orchestrating everything that goes down in this moment. And Jesus continues to orchestrate and to quarterback everything that is going down in our lives that, that's in service to the kingdom of God in the world right now. So let me give you five takeaways as, as you think about living a life on mission and and being about the things that Jesus is about, doing things with Jesus, not just for Jesus. Takeaway number one, let me encourage you not to hesitate in your obedience. As you learn to live a life on mission, do what Jesus tells you to do when he tells you to do it. Do your best not to argue, not to push back, not to resist or delay. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's impressions. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's promptings. Even if he's leading you in a direction that may surprise you, that may initially contradict something that you had assumed prior to that moment, if we're going to live our life on mission, we need, to be, we need to refuse to hesitate in our obedience so that when Jesus begins speaking and the Spirit begins leading, we listen and we follow, we listen and we follow not hesitating in our obedience. One of the reasons why we may not be seeing much movement happen in our lives, much movement happen in our city could be because we're not, it could be because we're hesitating too much. Some of you know exactly what Jesus has been calling you to do and commanding you to do, but you've been hesitating and, and you're wondering, okay, why am I not seeing stuff happen? Why am I not seeing more people come to faith in Jesus? Why am I not seeing more people come to see Jesus as beautiful rather than repulsive? Why, why am I not seeing more people seeing, believe it or not, even Jesus' people as beautiful and not repulsive? Well, 
It could be because there's a lot of hesitation in our obedience, a lot of hesitation in our discipleship. Takeaway number two, let me encourage you to practice hospitality in your relationships. Hospitality is one of the easiest, most ordinary ways in which we can live our life on mission. This is what Peter did when the strangers showed up at his gate. He opened up and he let them in. They shared that evening together before traveling together back to meet with Cornelius and the rest of the crew. And so let me encourage you to practice hospitality in your relationships Let's continue. We say this a lot in our church. Let's continue to turn our tables into places of grace, community, and mission. Let's open up our tables and share meals with people who are in the church, yes, but people who are outside of the church. Let's invite people into our lives. Let's invite people into our homes. Let's invite people to the table. You know what happens when you sit down at the table and you're forced to look at people in the eye? When you're sharing a table with someone, you're not elevated above them. You are not in an inferior position to them. No, you're sitting at that table, and that table puts you in the same position where you can look at each other, you can sit next to each other. You're eating food that reminds everyone at the table that we are all, that we are all dependent creatures, and none of us are independent creators. That's why we have to eat food, because if we don't eat food, we're going to die. And so I don't know what's more common and what, is more, what creates more solidarity in our humanity than sitting at the table and eating. And hospitality is an, extraordinary, it's an extraordinarily ordinary act that can serve our mission very, very well. So let me encourage you to practice hospitality. Open up your life. Open up your home. Open up your table. Invite people in. Let's do that as individuals and as families, but let's also do that as a church. Let's continue opening up our church and inviting people in. Let me encourage you to invite people into the community. Invite people into your missional community. Invite them into our worship gatherings. Bring people into earshot of the gospel. Let's invite. Let's show hospitality. Let's pursue people. Let's receive people. Let's love people well in this way. You know, a life on mission isn't as as hard as some of us make it out to be. It can be as simple as sitting down, sharing a meal, and engaging in, in good conversation. So you have these elements of not hesitating in our obedience, practicing hospitality. Third, humble yourself towards all people. Ask God to remove anything in your heart that would deceive you into thinking that you're better than someone. Ask God to remove anything in your heart that would deceive you into thinking you are inferior to someone. Pride uh, pride lives in both places. Humility lives when we are standing and looking at each other in the eyes and we are standing shoulder to shoulder. We are neither superior. We are neither inferior. Let's just be humble in our relationships with others. This means, let me, let, this is significant because one of the reasons some of you are not living a life on mission is because you're afraid of the people that you're called to serve. You're afraid to mention Jesus' name because you don't know how they're going to respond to you or react to you. And the problem with that is that fear isn't rooted in humility. That fear is actually rooted in pride. It's rooted in a pride that says, if this person doesn't like me, I must... I must not be likable. It's a pride that says it must be my technique that matters in mission and not the power of the spirit that matters in mission. 
And so you're afraid of making mistakes. You're afraid of being rejected. You're afraid of hearing no. And all of that is rooted in pride. None of that is rooted in humility. All of that is rooted, is part of the impediments that needs to be carved out of our hearts, which is why we need humility. We want to humble ourselves towards all people everywhere. Number four, if you're going to live a life on mission, let me encourage you to share the gospel explicitly. Jesus' mission does not advance in silence. Silence is inherently, serves as, silence is an inherent impediment to the mission of God in the world. Jesus brought Peter before these Gentiles not so that he could stand before them in silence. He brought them before these Gentiles so that he may open his mouth and explicitly share the story of Jesus. It's possible that we're not seeing people come to faith in our lives and in our mission and our ministry because we're not talking about Jesus. How are we ever going to see it happen if we're not doing the very thing that is essentially required for it to happen? Faith comes to a person by hearing, and what is it that they are to hear? They are to hear the word of Christ. They are to hear the gospel. And so we have to grow in our ability to share the gospel explicitly, to open our mouths and to mention Jesus' name, to open our mouths and to talk about the life that he lived and the death that he died. It's really comes to a point, one of the easiest ways to share the gospel is to constantly call attention to how much better Jesus is than you. It's a great way to share the gospel when you're in conversations with people and you, I don't know how I'm going to work this in. And, and one of the ways is just, you know, say, you know, Jesus is much better than me at this, you know. I, I would love to love my neighbor who's playing music at 2 a.m. and keeping me and waking up my kids in the middle of the night. But, but I'm having a hard time doing it. But, but, you know, Jesus, he's a lot better than me. If Jesus was in my shoes, he, he could love that person really well. And just call attention to the fact that Jesus is better than you. That puts you in a humble posture before them because you're realizing that we both need Jesus. And so you're elevating that. You're exalting that. You're calling attention to Jesus. But we have to learn to share the gospel if we're going to live a life on mission. And then the fifth and final takeaway, serve as an advocate. Serve as an advocate in two ways. One, serve as an advocate for mission in the life of the church. Meaning we need you to advocate by reminding us and each other that we have a mission to carry forth. It is very easy for us as churches to get stuck in our ways and to to forget that we are supposed to live our lives on mission, which is why we need advocates in our midst calling attention to that. Look, there are people over here that need the gospel. There are people over here that need the love of Jesus brought to them. There are people over here that need to be told the story of what Christ has done. And so we advocate for mission in the life of the church by reminding each other that we have something to do. We have something to be a part of. But not just advocating for mission. When we see people responding to the gospel, let's advocate for their inclusion. Which means if you see somebody professing faith in Jesus and they're coming to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the way you advocate for them is by bringing them into the family of faith. Don't let them die on their own in the middle of the city of Seattle. Recognize that what's happening to them is, is like a new birth, and they are now newborns. And like a newborn, they need the love and the nurture that can only come from a family. 
And so you advocate for others' inclusion by inviting them in and bringing them to missional community, teaching them how to worship in this type of setting, how to listen to the scriptures, how to respond to the scriptures. In other words, you're making disciples. So we advocate for people who are coming to faith in Jesus the way Peter advocated for the Gentiles in this moment. And much of the rest of the New Testament is one long story of the church trying to figure out how all this works. And it, can get, it gets really messy at times. And it can get really messy in our midst, in our church. But just because it gets messy, that doesn't mean we quit. It doesn't mean we give up. It means we continue to depend upon the grace of God. We continue to look to Jesus. And, and we put ourselves in a position for Jesus to carve any impediment out of our lives. Now, Look at the end of verse 18. I would remind you of this last dynamic, and this is a a challenge that I believe we need as a church. Notice at the end of verse 18, there's a connection between repentance and life. He says that repentance actually leads to life. One of the reasons repentance isn't a regular practice in our Christianity or in our discipleship is because we think repentance leads to death. We don't think repentance leads to life, but here the connection is drawn. Repentance, life. Repentance, life. Could it be that one of the reasons why you're not experiencing much spiritual vitality in your relationship with Jesus? Could it be that your affections for Jesus seem to be waning? Could it be that the life that Jesus wants you to have seems to be decreasing rather than increasing? Could it be because there's a lack of repentance And you're not seeing the connection between repentance and life in your life? Repentance leads to life. I can't help but wonder if there are things in my heart that that requires my repentance and that I'm missing out on much more life that I can have in Jesus and with Jesus and for Jesus. There's so much more I could have if repentance was being practiced more quickly if it was being practiced more regularly in my own heart. And I'm wondering if the same is true for you. When it comes to repentance, sometimes we have this mistaken idea that says, well, if I'm a Christian, that means I've already repented. And we say, well, I repented on September 2nd, 1992, when you put your faith in Jesus and you repented in that moment. But repentance for the Christian isn't simply a point in our spiritual experience. Repentance for a Christian is the posture of our spiritual existence, meaning the life we live is a life of steady repentance where we are turning from our way and we're turning to the way, where we are saying, I'm wrong in this, Jesus is right in this, there's impediments in my heart here, Jesus needs to remove them, I'm repenting, and that repentance leads to life. Could it be that the joy that you're lacking in your salvation, could it be because repentance isn't being practiced? There's a deep connection between repentance and life. And I wonder that if if a movement of Christ is going to be rekindled and reignited and strengthened in the city of Seattle, I believe that that movement is only going to happen when those of us who identify with Jesus, when we make repentance a regular practice in our discipleship. Repentance and life go hand in hand. Where life is lacking, repentance is lacking. Where repentance is present, life is growing. So let's be a repentant people. If we're not engaging a life on mission, let's repent. Whatever impediments are in our hearts right now preventing that from happening, let's repent. 
Let's confess. Let's turn from that way to the way. And let's go about things with Jesus. Not simply going about things, trying to do things for Jesus. There's one other thought that I'm having in this moment. And it has to do with how you discern what Jesus is doing when it comes to you joining Jesus in the work he's doing in the city of Seattle. I believe some of you have run yourself ragged trying to do things for Jesus. You're tired, you're stretched, you're frustrated, your life seems fruitless. It's not because you've been inactive, it's because you've been too active. And that you have been living your life just throwing everything at the wall, whatever sticks for the glory of Jesus, that's what sticks. But I'm throwing everything. Meanwhile, you're throwing your arm out trying to get everything up there. Could it be that you are wasting a lot of energy engaged in fruitless activity because you're trying to do so much for Jesus and you're not doing anything with Jesus? When you resign yourself to saying, okay, I'm going to live my life abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in me because that's where fruit goes and I, I get there in my life, all of a sudden you may find yourself doing less but producing a lot more fruit. Because you're no longer just doing everything for Jesus, you're now doing some, everything with Jesus and you're going to be a lot more fruitful when that becomes the dynamic. There was a book written several years ago, and it was a book that I really enjoyed when I first read it, and I respect the author who wrote it. He's written a lot of really good books that I read and I've been edified for, edified by, but the title can be taken and ran with in a direction that we're not supposed to run as Christians. The title of this book was trying to encourage Christians to be about Jesus' work in the world, and it was titled, Just Do Something. And it was built on a statement that Augustine made back in the fourth century where he told someone, just love God and do what you want. And so this, this author was convicted that Christians were sitting idle because they were so worried about not doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. And he was saying, look, let's just do something. Just doing something is better than nothing. And although I respect where he's coming from and making that statement, I can't help but think it goes against the grain of Jesus' example. I mean, it was Jesus who said, I'm not just doing everything. I'm, only do, I'm not just doing something. I'm, I'm doing what I see my Father doing. It's Jesus that said in John chapter 15, abide in me and I will abide in you and you're going to bear much fruit. And then you're, you're going to grow into an attractive follower of Jesus and people are going to be attracted to Christ in you because fruit is blossoming and, and you know that that fruit isn't growing so that you can eat, it's growing so that other people can eat. And so you think and you consider how you don't want to just go about your life trying to do a bunch of things for Jesus. You want to settle into a rhythm of being with Jesus so that he leads and he guides and he directs and he's empowering the work that you're doing. And in that moment, you're going to find yourself becoming much, much more fruitful. You're going to become more fruitful by doing less in many instances than just trying to do a whole lot of fruitless activity that's just running you ragged and it's making you joyless and it's causing you to be irritable and it's causing you even to bell out on serving Jesus and trying to do anything in light of the kingdom of God and the mission of the church. So let me encourage you to settle into your relationship with Christ. Abide in him and let him abide in you. Learn to hear his voice, learn to follow his promptings, learn to obey his commands and do the things that he has already told you to do and the things that he is currently telling you to do as you move in that direction. And if we move in that direction, we're going to find ourselves being a much more fruitful, joyful, loving, patient, kind, contagious 
church as we live our lives on mission. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we think through these dynamics? God, we recognize that you have called us to live our lives on mission with you and not just for you, and I pray that you would show us how to do that. I pray that your spirit would be our counselor, that your spirit would be our teacher, that your spirit would be our guide, and that you would lead us in the directions you would have us go so that we might be a fruitful people, seeing more men and women introduced to the beauty of Jesus, seeing more people groups around the world coming to find life in Christ. God, if there's anything impeding that, any lack of repentance on our part that may be impeding those dynamics, I pray that you would give us grace, that we may repent and that we may find and experience the life that you intend for us to have. God, we ask and we pray for all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.